question number one and the only question for this session. Okay, the question is, Pastor Skeet, is it okay to watch movies as long as they are not R-rated? What about movies about Jesus? Is it okay to watch movies as long as they're not what? Uh, R-rated. Oh, R-rated. R-rated. Okay. The Bible says in Philippians chapter 4, verse 8, Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things. When we make decisions as to what will enter our minds, because once something gets into your mind, you cannot get it out. Now, you can seek divine wisdom to control its influence, but it is best not to allow certain things to enter our minds. Now, if you are a Christian, and I suppose the, the, the question comes from a Christian, the, Christ, the, the, the Christian always has to consider, is this to the glory of God? 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, Whether therefore ye eat or drink or whatsoever ye do, what you watch, what you hear, what you wear, do all to the glory of God. Now this is an individual matter. And I am not legislating for anyone. But I'm simply saying the Christian functions by different standards altogether. The Christian standards of recreation, standards of play, standards of social interaction, standards of boy-girl relationships, they are vastly different from the world. Now, if you're one of those Christians who happen to be half and half, you know, we have African-Americans, Italian-Americans, Irish-Americans, Chinese-Americans, and then you have Christian, non-Christian, you have vegetarian, meat-eater. We have all these combinations. If you're one of those, then you can watch anything you like. But if you're a genuine child of God, you've got to be careful what you allow to enter your mind. Proverbs 4.23 says, Keep thine heart with all diligence, the heart being the mind. Keep it, guard it. That's the same word used in the Genesis when God told Adam, dress the garden and keep it. It's the same word used when the Bible says, remember the Sabbath day, keep it holy. We must keep our minds with all diligence. For out of it are the issues of life. All possible diligence we must guard our mind. Whether the movie is about Jesus or not, we must also remember that God judges an action based on the motive behind it. Movies are made for financial reasons. Whether it's the passion of Christ, the last temptation of Christ, or the first temptation, movies are made for business reasons. And so my response to you is, whatsoever things are true, honest, just, pure, lovely, of good report, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things and do all to the glory of God. Thank you, Dr. Ellie. Thank you, Pastor Skeet. God bless you. Let me remind you, we have a healing service, prayer service for the sick this coming Sabbath afternoon. I guess we shall be at Chan Auditorium, and the service will be at 4 o'clock, and we are fasting again. 
This is not an imposition. It is just an invitation to engage in spiritual discipline. We're fasting again from Friday evening until after the healing service, so we will not have potluck this coming Sabbath afternoon. It's good to fast. It really, really is. It's 20 minutes after 12. I have to rush on. I just have half an hour. Let us now bow our heads as we pray. Father in heaven, in the time left to your manservant, grant me the words, grant me the right spirit. Open the hearts of your people who have come to listen. Let the truth spoken find a welcome in their hearts that when we leave, we may leave rejoicing in the truth and your name alone glorified. I offer this prayer in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Let me urge you and encourage you to come back tonight because what I say now, I will say much more in the evening for the obvious reason I have more time. Our subject is what and where is the kingdom of God? What and where is the kingdom of God? When Adam sinned, he turned over dominion of this world to someone else. When God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, fowl of the air. God gave dominion, not ownership, but dominion. The world was put under Adam. Psalm 8, reading from verse 3. When I consider thy heavens, the works of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that thou visitest him? For thou hast made him a little lower than the angels, and hast crowned him with glory and honor. Thou gavest him to have dominion over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things under his feet. All things under his feet simply meant that Adam was in charge of the created world in which God put him to live. Mankind was given dominion over the world, not ownership. Because God is very clear. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. When Melchizedek blessed Abram in Genesis 14 verse 20, verse 19, he said, Blessed be Abram of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth. It belongs to God, but he, has give, he gave dominion. But when Adam sinned, he lost the dominion. And so when the devil tempted Jesus Christ, according to Luke's version, in Luke chapter 4, verse 5 through 7, the Bible says, And the devil, taking him up into a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said unto him, All this power will I give unto thee, and the glory of them, for that is delivered unto me, and to whomsoever I will give it. The devil said, that has been delivered unto me. He was referring to the fact that when Adam fell, Adam delivered dominion over to him. Now the Bible does acknowledge the devil has some dominion, not ownership, because Jesus in John 12, 31 says, Now is the judgment of this world, now shall the prince of this world be cast out. In John 14, verse 30, Jesus says, Henceforth I will not talk much with you, for the prince of this world cometh and hath nothing in me. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, Paul says, Because the God of this world hath blinded their minds. So the devil is regarded as the prince of this world, the God of this world. But when Jesus died on Calvary, he reclaimed the dominion that Adam lost. I've just given you a lot. Rapid fire because of little time. Let me repeat it. When God made Adam, he gave him dominion. You are responsible for this world. The vegetation, the animals, the environment. Adam sinned 
and he forfeited that dominion to the devil. And the devil had some kind of legal right because the one who was in charge submitted to his rule. And we're told in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 19, by whom a man is overcome of the same is he brought in bondage. Adam was overcome by the devil. And of course, he came under the devil's rule in the sense that Satan became the prince of this world. Christ reclaimed that dominion when he died on earth. Now, when God made the earth, it was God's intention to extend his kingdom, his reign of love upon this earth. Life on this earth was to be a reflection of life in the kingdom above. Adam was supposed to be the, the leader in making sure that things were done according to the standards of the kingdom of God. This was God's will to extend his reign and his rule. It is a reign of love and a reign of law. The United States has some sort of foreign policy to extend democracy all over the world, whether people want it or not. That's the policy. Spread democracy, all right? God's policy is spread the kingdom of love. That's why he made the heaven and the earth. Adam saying the devil took over. Now, God called a special people. And I'm jumping from Genesis to Exodus. They were the descendants of Abraham. They're the Israelites. They were in Egypt, slaves. God has delivered them. And now they are in the wilderness. And God tells Moses in Exodus chapter 25, verse 8, and let them make me a sanctuary. Why? That I might what? Dwell among them. It has always been God's desire to dwell with his people. The Christian, in times of human loneliness, must ever understand that God dwells with me. And I'm not speaking symbolically. Symbolically, I'm speaking quite literally. God dwells with us in the person of his Holy Spirit. And the angels that we cannot see that surround us and protect us. God said, let them make me a sanctuary that I might dwell among them. Exodus 25 verse 8. Even before Adam sinned, God would come down and talk to him. We must, we can extrapolate that from verse 9 which says, And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden at the cool of the day. Actually verse 8 of Genesis 3. So God had a habit of coming down to talk with Adam and Eve face to face, dwelling with them, interacting, socializing, if that is the proper word to refer to God's interaction with his people. Now he tells the Israelites through Moses, make me a sanctuary that I might dwell among them. The sanctuary, which was a tent, because the word for sanctuary means dwelling place, a tent. In John 1, 14, where the Bible says, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. The translation there is tabernacle, and it harks back to the tabernacle in Exodus 25, verse 8. It was a tent with two compartments, and we know that. What was the first compartment called? And the second compartment, most holy place. The first compartment, holy place. The second compartment, most holy place. Then there was an outer court where we had the altar of sacrifice and the play and the laver and where the animals were tied that were to be sacrificed. In the holy place, there was a table of showbread to the north, there was the uh, altar of incense, and there was a seven-branch candelabrum or candlestick. And in the most holy place, where the high priest could only go once a year, and if he entered that holy place with sin in his life, he dropped dead. And tradition tells us when he went into that compartment, a rope was tied around his waist, and there were bells on the hem of his garment. 
As the people listen to him ministering, they can hear the bells, so they knew he was alive. If they ceased to hear the bells, they knew he was dead, and they would use the rope to pull him out because they could not go get him. You could not go into that most holy place, only the priest, and only one day of the year, the Day of Atonement, and he had to be sure all his sins had been forgiven and cleansed. Now, in this most holy place, there was one article of furniture, and that was called the what? The ark. The ark was made of pure gold. It was actually three in one. There was a wooden frame, a wooden box, overlaid and inlaid with gold, Exodus 25, verse 11. The dimensions were simple. In verse 10, Exodus 25, the Bible says, And they shall make an ark of shittim wood. Two cubits and a half shall be the length thereof. One cubit and a half the breadth thereof, and a cubit and a half the height thereof. And thou shalt make, thou shalt overlay it with pure gold within and without shalt thou overlay it, and shalt place upon it a crown of gold round about. So we have this golden box, and the purpose for the box was to house what? The Ten Commandments. And in verse 16 of Exodus 25, the Bible says, And thou shalt put into the ark the testimony which I shall give thee. In the ark. Now the ark was the single most important article of furniture in the tabernacle. Yea, indeed, the whole point of the tabernacle, the whole point of all the sacrifices was to make atonement for the violation of God's holy law contained in that golden box. The ark may be properly referred to as the very heart of the sanctuary. And in it, the Ten Commandments, the two tables of stone. Now the ark had a lid called the mercy seat. It was made of gold, verses 17 through 20 of Exodus 25. And the mercy seat covered the ark. And God told Moses in verses 22, 21 and 22 of Exodus 25, that the, uh, the Ten Commandments would go into the ark, covered with the mercy seat. And in verse 22, God said, And there I will meet with thee, right above the mercy seat. Here's the, here's the box. The mercy seat is the cover. God said, my presence will be right upon or just above the mercy seat, representing his throne. And God goes on to say, and I, there I will meet with thee, and I will commune with thee from above the mercy seat. From between the two cherubims, which are upon the ark of the testimony of all things which I will give thee in commandment unto the children of Israel. God is saying, whenever I speak, I speak from this position. Now, if President Clinton travels to Indonesia and he speaks, where is he speaking from? When a sitting president goes anywhere in the world and he speaks, where is he speaking from? The White House. Because he speaks with the authority of the ruler of this republic. He speaks with the authority of the White House. Wherever he goes, if Condoleezza Rice, the Secretary of State, if she goes to Siberia and she says anything, she is speaking with the authority of the White House. And so God says, whatever I say, I will say it from here. Now, that's not to mean that God did, God's presence wasn't seen anywhere else. It was seen at the door to the tabernacle of the congregation, meaning the holy place. God's presence was seen elsewhere. But the authority of his words, they issued forth from that 
place that represented his throne. And this is the picture we must understand. When God speaks, he always speaks with the authority of his throne. So God speaks always as a sovereign, not as a negotiator. Are you following me? This is critical. Now, what's so critical about the throne of God? The ark represented the throne. Now, in the throne were the Ten Commandments. The foundation of God's throne is His law. Let me say that again, because I didn't get an amen the first time. You're busy digesting, I understand. Let me try it again. The foundation of God's government, of God's kingdom, of God's sovereignty is His law. In Hebrews chapter 1 verse 8, by the way, read Hebrews chapter 1, particularly from verses 4 on. It's a remarkable chapter that has God talking about Jesus. And one of the things the Father says about the Son, verse 8, But unto the Son he saith, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. Now what is a scepter? A scepter is a staff that symbolizes authority and rulership. The Father says of Jesus Christ, Thy scepter, a scepter of righteousness, is the scepter of thy kingdom. God's kingdom is administered on the principles of righteousness. The Bible says, all thy commandments are righteousness. We read in Psalm 89 verse 14, Justice and judgment are the habitations of thy throne. The word justice there could be translated righteousness. So righteousness and judgment are the habitation of God's throne. The word habitation means foundation. And the writer says that because the foundation of the throne are the Ten Commandments. Meaning that the kingdom of God is a kingdom in which everything proceeds on the basis of righteousness and judgment as expressed incomparably in God's law, His Ten Commandments. They are commandments of righteousness, they are commandments of justice, and Jesus said they are commandments of love. So we have the throne, but let's take another look at the throne. What does throne mean? We said scepter means a staff, a symbol of authority to rule. The throne is no different. When Joseph went to Pharaoh to explain the two dreams that Pharaoh had. After Joseph explained the dreams, Joseph took full advantage of the opportunity of being in Pharaoh's presence, and he also told Pharaoh what to do. Now, Pharaoh didn't call him to ask for what to do. Pharaoh just called for the interpretation. But when the Christian has an opportunity, he makes the most of it. Am I right? So Joseph told him what to do, and Pharaoh was so impressed, Pharaoh put him in charge of the whole country, but one level under Pharaoh, here is what Pharaoh said to Joseph in Genesis 41 verse 40. He said, Thou shalt be over my house. According unto thy word shall all my people be ruled. Without exception. Then Pharaoh, being a smart politician, says, Only in the throne will I be greater than thou. Now, he had just put Joseph over his entire kingdom. But Pharaoh understood that when the buck had to stop, it stopped at the throne. Pharaoh said, 
only in the throne will I be greater than thou. The throne, there is no higher level than the throne, and this is the position God occupies, symbolically expressed in the Shekinah glory, His presence that hovered above the ark, the ark representing His throne. Now there is a throne in heaven that God occupies, and there are commandments in heaven. Now I can't give precise details, but I know from Revelation 11 verse 19, and the, temple, and the temple of God was open in heaven, and there was seen in his temple the ark of the testament, which is heaven's version, which was the original pattern on which the earthly one was based. You read Exodus 25 verse 9, Exodus 25 verse 40, God told Moses to make it based on the pattern I will show you, and the pattern he received was the very original in heaven itself. Which leads me to say this very quickly at 1237, because that which was on the earth is just a copy and not the original, any man who wants to change God's law is wasting time by changing the copy. Where does he, ask them, where does he have to make his change? In the, but where's the original? And who sits on the throne? Now where are the Ten Commandments? In the throne. Now here comes some powerful earthling. He wants to change God's law. And I'm digressing, as I always do. Somehow he gets up to heaven. And he goes into God's presence, and here's God on the throne. He wants to get at the law. What does he have to do? Move God. What did Satan say? I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. To be like God, you've got to... You see, you cannot set up a rival kingdom. God will not allow that. So you either submit to God, remove God. Because He sits on that throne. The foundation of which is His righteous law. Now I'm asking the question, what is the kingdom of God and where is it? The kingdom of God is the rule of righteousness. Somebody say amen. amen. Now Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. That's what he told Pilate. John 17 verse 36. Pilate said to him in verse 35, Am I a Jew? Thine own nation and the chief priests have delivered thee unto me. What hast thou done? Verse 36, John 18, Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. Now, Jesus did not mean, My kingdom is not in this world. He said, My kingdom is not of this world. Meaning, My kingdom is not earthly. It is not worldly. Now, it is in the world. But it's not worldly. It is on earth. But it's not earthly. Because He did say in Luke 17, 21, The kingdom of God is within you. In Matthew 12, 28 and Luke eleven twenty, he said, If I cast out spirits, devils by the Spirit of God, the kingdom of God is come unto you. The kingdom of God came when Jesus came. John the Baptist, Matthew 3, verse 2. In those days came John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is here. Jesus preached the same thing in Matthew 14, 17 and in Mark chapter 1, verse 15. Repent and believe the gospel for the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is here. Now, it is not of the world because its principles do not originate from the world. They originate from above. That's what Jesus meant when he said, My kingdom is not of this world. Now, he said the same thing of the disciples. In John 17, verse 14, 
Jesus praying to his father said, I have given them thy word and the world hath hated them because they are not of the world even as I am not of the world. But while he was saying that, his disciples were on the earth. What did he mean? Verse 15, I pray not that thou shouldst take them out of the world, but that thou shouldst keep them from the evil. The kingdom of God is not tainted by the principles of evil. Verse 16, John 17, they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Christians, we need to understand that the principles by which God calls us to, to live our lives are not earthly. They are divine. And God is not a professor who sets you up for failure by presenting standards that are contrary to your genetic makeup. If God calls earthlings to live by divine standards, he is morally compelled to provide the power to allow earthlings to live up to divine standards. And so the kingdom of God is not of this world in the sense that it is not of an earthly origin. It is heavenly. But God tells us through the power of Jesus Christ, my heavenly kingdom can find expression in your life even while you live in this sinful world. Because by my grace, by my power, through the cleansing of my blood, you and I can live on this earth. And yet we can live by principles that are not earthly. Where is the kingdom of God? It's here. It's in you. It's in me. 1242 Loma Linda should be a reflection of the kingdom of God. Somebody say amen. Andrews ought to be a reflection of the kingdom of God. My home should be a reflection of the kingdom of God. Yours. When a basketball game is played here, we should see the kingdom of God. Where is it? It's right here. And so in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus said, after this manner pray, our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. What does the rest say? Thy kingdom. We must long for the world that is governed by the principles of righteousness. Thy kingdom come. We're sick of sin. We're sick of the principles of the world now run and dominated by the devil. We must desire and long for and yearn for and pray and ache for the kingdom of God because it is a kingdom of righteousness and the righteousness is defined in the flesh by the life of Jesus Christ and in written form in the Ten Commandments. And so Jesus says, seek ye first the kingdom of God. Seek ye first the That lifestyle that through and through is characterized by righteousness. Now, you're a member of the kingdom of God. Its principles come from above. You think they show movies in heaven? Don't answer me. I'm going back to the question, do you think movies are shown in heaven, whether they are rated, curated, or X-rated? They are not shown there. God will show a movie. He will, one of these days, when he comes back. Because before God destroys all sinners, they have to see the lives they have led. They have to see God was fair. That's why Paul says in Philippians 2, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess, Jesus Christ is Lord. Before God destroys the sinners, they must confess, Lord, you were right. And somehow He will show them their lives. Where the screen will be, I don't know. But if you believe the kingdom of God includes movies, then that's your belief. This kingdom functions on principles that are precisely in conformity with the very character of God. And it was kept, the law, the ark, in the most holy compartment of that tent. 
the most holy compartment. And I say again, the entire reason for the tent was the Ten Commandments in that ark. The throne, a righteous throne. The scepter, the, the symbol of rule, a scepter of righteousness. And Jesus came to call men and women into this kingdom. In this kingdom, there is love one for the other. One of the great tragedies of Bible study or modern religion is that people make a difference between the law and love. Not understanding that the law is an expression of love and the highest expression of love is obedience to God. So you've actually got preachers and Christians telling people, love, don't obey. That's like saying, don't breathe and live. Let me lower the decibels of my voice. I scream at you a lot. You must forgive me. People who preach have a painful ache inside. Any preacher listening to me will know exactly what I say. You've got a pain inside and you ease it only by delivering God's word. I'm, I'm telling you, it is only eased when you get a chance to deliver God's word. But we must remember we are same flesh and blood. So I lowered the decibels of my voice at 40, uh, 14 minutes to 1. Now let me appeal to your heart. First, come back tonight. This is only half the sermon. Come back tonight. I am going to tell you something that perhaps you've never thought of. But if you will receive it, the way we live our lives will change. I have told you before, God functions on the basis of principles. Have I said that before? Have I told you before, God is a God of procedure? God's an order of process? God's a God of order? I will stress that tonight in context of the kingdom of God. This kingdom of righteousness. And so God said to Moses, let them make me a sanctuary that I might dwell among them. God dwells in an environment of righteousness. He brings it and he dwells in it. That's why sin had to be wiped away, washed away by the blood of Christ. Because God does not want to dwell in an unrighteous environment. He wants to dwell where it is righteous. Where all that he is, is reflected in all that we do. Righteous professors, whose consciences are clear when they return the papers that they marked. Righteous students, whose consciences are clear that they did not cheat. Righteous everybody, whose consciences are clear because the conscience is viewed through the lens of God's standard of right and wrong, the commandments, and it detects no spots, no stains, no aberrations, and all that means it is the very character of God. I didn't say the substance of God, that's Jesus. I said the very character of God. I want a place in God's kingdom now. And when he comes to make it the entire system of this world. I want to remain in God's kingdom. And I publicly say, Father, by your grace and the blood of your son, Jesus Christ, I renew my commitment to you. Receive me. As a citizen of this kingdom. 
How many will say, Father, my desire is to live in the kingdom of God. Can I see your hands? God bless you. Will you stand with me? 12 minutes to 1. We have 2 minutes to pray. God bless you. Remember, if you have the cards, fill them out. We want to know if you need Bible studies, you need prayer. You want to have a one-on-one with me because I'll be here five days after Sabbath just seeing people. My great joy is preaching and meeting one-on-one. I want you to leave this place thinking, am I a citizen of the kingdom of God? Am I a law-abiding citizen? You know, I love policemen. I would not live in a town where there are no police. Policemen don't bother me at all. You know why? I try to keep the law. Policemen are a blessing to me. But for the lawbreaker, you better run and hide. They become a curse. God's law is like that. But we can be citizens of the kingdom. And that's what we have stood to say. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Father, in the name of Jesus, we come to you and we say, Make us by the blood of your Son citizens of the kingdom of God, which is a kingdom of righteousness, a kingdom of justice, a kingdom of love. Father, remove from our hearts any principles of the enemy that may have led our lives and let the principles of your kingdom from top to bottom control every facet of our lives. Give us a love for these principles, I pray, because one day you are coming to establish this kingdom all over this world and we want to be a part. For now... Day by day, let us live as faithful citizens of this kingdom, I pray, that the principles of right and justice may be seen in our lives. I offer this prayer in Jesus' name, and for his sake, let all God's people say with me, Amen.